Welcome back fam. This is part two of our review of Triangle Strategy, the HD 2D strategy RPG developed by Art Inc. and Square Enix and published by Nintendo in March of 2022. Part one covered our reactions to the first 10 hours of gameplay and part two here will cover our reactions to the first 10 hours of story. And here we go. As we've played 10 hours, we're going to give you, the listener, a 10-hour spoiler alert. If you listen to this entire episode, expect us to spoil details about characters and plot that you would expect to encounter within the first 10 hours of you playing the game. Yeah, 10-hour spoiler alert. We're going to spoil the first 10 hours for you. Yeah, don't bitch at us later. All right. This game is set in the land of Norzelia. Norzelia is fractured, kind of like pie cut into three pieces, with three kingdoms each occupying three very distinct biomes. We have Glenbrook, which is, let's just say, a river and grassland kingdom. We have the Grand Duchy of Acefrost, A-E-S-F-R-O-S-T, in the mountains. And we have Hyzant, which is a desert kingdom, home to a salt lake that a large city is crowded around. They all have very different um, cultures. Glenbrook is more of a traditional knight's king and has high houses that we'll talk more about in a bit. I guess, hold on here. I guess Glenbrook and the and Ace Frost are sort of conventional medieval kingdoms. Ace Frost is a little more Norse in style. Its castle is a little iron forgy, if you are wow savvy. And Hyzant is a theocracy and their architecture is kind of Islamic as well. I will temper that explanation a little bit in that Ace Frost deems itself a meritocracy. So even though they have a ruling class, apparently your place on that ruling class is determined by your ability to be productive to society at large. They haven't gotten into too many details in that in the main campaign. There's some side books that explain it a little bit, but that does make them thematically a little more unique than the Glenbrook style of feudalism that we're experiencing. I'm glad you mentioned that because each of these three kingdoms have different modalities to power. As you mentioned, Ace Frost values your merits. And in Glenbrook, it's a little more like your blood and you have their high houses and a king and, and the king's family. And in Hyzant, it is a matter of religion and the goddess. And they're all free people there, except for the people that are persecuted. <laughs> That's the world, that's the setting. And there's a large cast of characters that come from all of them. And it's set up as a geopolitical struggle, which is kind of like, I don't know, Game of Thrones. They're setting up a lot of characters, which is oh, all of these characters. And that's what it's kind of feeling like. There's lots of politics and projects and treaties and history. Oh my goodness. There's also the Salt Iron War that took place 30 years ago. Nate, are you able to talk about the Salt Iron War? Well, here's the thing is I'm going to illuminate my own ignorance ignorance here by talking about the salt iron wars i originally messaged tyler i asked is salt that big of a deal <laughs> i guess in our everyday lives here we don't think about salt nearly as much as people 500 years ago did i picture it as that thing i put on my mashed potatoes <laughs> <laughs> but i guess as i researched a little bit i had the question did people fight wars over salt the resounding answer is absolutely yes apparently. And that's just showing the failure of the American educational system. Yeah, man. Or maybe the prosperity of the American ex 
experience that now salt is nothing, whereas we used to slave and die over it. We'll fight over the damnedest things. I mean, haven't you heard of the War of the Roses? They fought over roses, Nate. Roses. Have you ever heard of the War of the Worlds? They fought over worlds, Nate. Worlds. Yes, they. we will fight over anything. So I was proven wrong about the salt-iron war and its relative importance. For a time, I was thinking, you know, hey, salt wars, Star Wars. In Star Wars, there is a product called Spice, which is absolutely not just regular spice. It is a galactic addictive drug in the world of Star Wars, but they don't tell you that. And there's just people talking about spice all the time. And it made me think, did George Lucas originally write this inspired by actual spice? And then he realized he like, wait, this is dumb for people in across the galaxy to be worrying about actual real spice. So I need to make it something different. I don't know, because there's a lot of those early writings of him where he's just talking about trade disputes from like the East India Company and things like that. So I think Star Wars was originally inspired by spice, just like this game is inspired by salt. I didn't know that about Star Wars spice. That's pretty interesting. Okay, so we've talked about the three kingdoms. They have the three hierarchy modalities, but they also have three resources that they each attend to and everybody wants. Salt, Hyzant, Iron, Ace Frost, and Glenbrook is is water, but I don't think it's water water. It's it's the economical commerce that waterways provide. To take the simplest route, even though I don't think it was explicitly explained, in the north, you're going to have a problem growing crops, and in the desert, you're going to have a problem growing crops. So I think maybe Glenbrook has got food on lockdown. The conversations about what Glenbrook provides in this triangle <laughs> of kingdoms isn't as like commodified as iron and salt is. And so, which is why I kind of wondered if they were really just talking about waterways as, as uh, economic trade routes. Regardless, 30 years ago, there was a bitter fight about it. And now there was a treaty that took place at the end of it. And there is an organization that attends to the equilibrium the treaty provides, and they're called the Norzelia Consortium. It's kind of like the League of Nations. They organize the truce, fair trade between all of these commodities. Yeah, Tyler. And so as we discover the setting, the plot, all of this, we start to zoom in on the characters that make up all of these important events in the modern era. Our main character, the most important person to highlight, his name is Sarah Noah Wolffort or Wolffort as they will say it but I, I always separate in my head I literally think of him as a fort full of wolves <laughs> His dad is the head of this warrior clan who are known as the protectors of Glenbrook. So even though Glenbrook has a king and a royal family, there's a certain amount of accolade that the Wolford family carries within Glenbrook for being the warrior class of the, the country. And Sarah Noah is the heir to that family. And as we'll soon discover within our play sessions here, the patriarch of the family is ill and feels that he rapidly needs to pass on his responsibilities to you, the player. Yeah. Young man, brown tousled hair, swordsman, looks almost exactly like Joseph, the protagonist of the not yet released Final Fantasy 16. I really haven't been keeping tabs on that, so that's an interesting observation. One is rendered in like Super HD and one is rendered in pixel art, but they do look very similar. I guess Joseph has like a scowl. He's like a hard-bitten, damaged. He's, he's 
not a fresh-faced young lad like Serenoa is, but in physical form, they are very similar. Next on the list is Frederica. She is a Rosellen. Am I saying that right? Sure. She is a Rosellen princess, an illegitimate daughter. A bastard. I don't even know if it's illegitimate because can you have multiple wives in Ace Frost? I don't know. She is the daughter of the former Archduke of Esfrost. I keep saying Ace Frost. It's actually the, the characters in the game pronounce it Esfrost. So she is a princess, but not really because there are several more people in line to leadership. And also this place is a meritocracy, so it's even more muddled. In general, she has some sort of position, but that place is just a swirling, shifting sand of possibility and weird stuff. So all I can say is Frederica is being wed to Saranoia almost kind of symbolically. Saranoia is not crown of Glenbrook and Frederica is not in line for the crown of Esfrost by any degree. So neither of these people are going to come to real power as the story presents it to us. So it's like a symbolic each nation kind of saying here let's do this this little sign of trust between one another. As far as characters go I think that's kind of the core. We can get into other characters like Roland, Sereno's best friend and Prince of Glenbrook. There are several characters of the aristocracy of Esfrost we meet, regents and magisters of Hyzant that we can get into. Tyler, is there anyone else you really feel the need to highlight to jump down a little bit further down the rabbit hole of an endless sea of additional characters that may or may not be important? Sure. Benedict is a tactician. He is a steward of Serenoa's house and he's a playable character. Likewise, Frederica is joined by Gila, tutor, attendant, healer, and says few when she goes, when you go, she's the one that goes few. And they are all part of our squad. Saranoa, Lady Frederica, she's a fire mage, uh, pink hair. And because she's a half princess, let's say her mom was a Rosellen and Rosellen are a minority class in Hyzant. And so her full siblings uh, resent her um, for being this minority, a minority from another kingdom. And so they have a lot of disdain for her. All I'll say is kind of important to know is that the Esfrost royal family seems to have some xenophobic tendencies to them. Them. Like we mentioned, they look down on the Rosellen. They openly, among all members of all countries, ridicule their half-sister for having pink hair. The indication of who the, the Rosellen are, they all have this hair color. I'm going to guess there's a larger story at play here. In your first step into the game, it is kind of off-putting to have somebody just be openly racist and then everyone around them doesn't react to it whatsoever. Even at times, the woman's husband to be just kind of shrugging off the fact that people just belittled her. So if that kind of gives you a little bit of color for the type of personality that a few of these royal family members of Esfrost have, we'll let that sink in and talk about that later. Well, you might say that the Esfrost royal family are kind of making as much hay with her as they can by getting her out of the kingdom and wedding her to House Wolford. I will also say more about uh, Roland here. So Roland is the prince of the proper royal family of Glenbrook, but he's an adventurous type. He doesn't like sitting on the throne and listening to audiences from the members. He likes getting out and getting his uh, hands dirty with his best friend, Saranoa. And so although the royal family would like him to stay in the Glenbrook castle, he does not. He joins us for the fun. He rides a horse and he 
wields a spear and he does uh, he, has, he has high mobility but he's not very durable and so you might get him into some trouble by overextending yourself too soon which I have done a handful of times and I'm guessing that's his charge that you just charge like six squares ahead and then you're in the middle of everyone there was an incident on one of the levels where there were three guys lined up and I just had to and then he immediately got annihilated after doing the charge <laughs> yes when he died he didn't for me he was not quite so glorious but that sounds like a pretty <laughs> pretty tempting uh play the the quick and dirty on the order, order of events here is uh lady frederica and gila meet Serenoa by boat the boat meeting is waylaid by bandits which serves as our tutorial battle um they get together we meet uh, other members of the house wolfort crew um there's a tourney that takes place where different kingdoms kind of get the measure of one another and then afterwards we learn that saranoa is going to become the king's hand he's going to speak with the king's voice and uh and his first mission is to go on a trip to one of the two kingdoms that you can visit it. Your choice of one of two kingdoms. I find this kind of funny. Serenoa has been imbued with this power, but Serenoa democratizes that power to his posse about where he's going to go. He has kingly power, but he democratizes it to make his first major decision with it. And I just find that very interesting. It's even a layer deeper than that. You're talking two layers. There's three layers. He's the leader and he gets to make the decisions. He tells everyone else, hey, we'll vote on it together. We'll all make the decision together and then he systematically goes to each person and tries to influence their decision in a different direction <laughs> so there's a third layer of why didn't you just make the choice yourself I feel like this is a really cool gameplay element to get you involved in chatting with people and learning their motivations and giving you a measure of control but if we're looking at it in real life it's a little bit of like manipulative gaslighting in a way of like hey you get to make the choice but you better make the choice that i suggested to you but you go ahead just make that choice it's okay <laughs> mm -hmm. right so this moment is dressed up to be pretty important and we'll probably see some more of these democratized voting moments between our party at large here i am but because this is the first one, I think that if you did what you needed to do at a basic level, you can go to whichever kingdom that you wanted to. And for the listener's information, Nate and I split off into the two different countries deliberately to give a more robust uh, review here. Nate went to Esfras and I went to the desert of Hyzant. Nate, can you say a little bit about what you did when you went to Esfras? And I'll say a little bit about what I did in, in Hyzant. Yes. So going to Esfras, there is a significant sect designed to teach you about the history and customs of this country. We learn a little bit when we're introduced to them as people as they're visiting our nation, but you get a deeper understanding by visiting there. There is a large library where all are welcome to take part in discovering the storied secrets of Aesros's research and knowledge. The core tenant of what allows you into this library is can you produce? If you gain the country's wisdom, what are you going to create from it? It's a very interesting dynamic to that meritocracy, that production produces access and access produces production. Very much the cycle of late stage capitalism we live in now where in order to make money you have to have money. How do you get the money? Well hopefully you have institutional wealth to get you started. 
because otherwise you might be locked out. So those locked outside of the library are the people suffering on the streets who can't afford the heavy salt taxes they need for their mashed potatoes and l not living the dream. People at the top, their opinion is, well, these people aren't productive. Why Why would they have access to the, the archives? You know, they need to show their, their grit, their metal, right? And we catch 22 and our main character comments on that, that from what he's seeing, not everything about this system is as ideal as it is romanticized. Thus, while we're visiting, we meet the Archduke. He asks us for our opinion on his nation and his dealings, and I forget the exact answer I gave, but he was disappointed in my answer and thought that I was a little naive. So I like the idea that there was a chance to impress him or not impress him with my answer, but I did meet the Archduke of Esfrost. His name is Ustadolf. So th that was a nice meeting, and he actually asks me if I'd be interested in assisting with a delicate matter. There is actually a group of smugglers who are smuggling in impure contraband salt into the region and that it threatens to disrupt the livelihoods and trade of legitimate salt dealers. So he asked us if we would help shut them down. We join a guard captain of the region and a spy. The spy is helping us in order to gain pardon for previous actions. And, and thus the spy helps us in our battle and he eventually joins our party as he is still considered technically a ne'er-do-well within Esfros, but from our outside perspective, seeing that this smuggler was just dealing the best he could within a flawed system. We see use for him and we ask him to join our party back in Glenbrook since there is no place for him in Esfrost. I don't know, from your perspective, Tyler, not having experienced that section of the game, is there anything that stood out to you as interesting or illuminating that you've heard nothing about this and you wish you had played that section? Uh, yeah, I think the library and access to it, it sounds pretty interesting. I thought I thought you might learn more about the forge and the black irons, but I didn't hear you speak too much about that. I think it's interesting that we each got different playable characters uh, to join our party, depending on who we picked. You got a spy, and I'll, I'll speak about the one that I got. I think that's pretty interesting. So I went to uh, Hyzan. Um, we were escorted there by members of the Saintly Seven. So it is a theocracy in Hyzant. And so there's no king, there's no emperor. It is a cabal of holy people. And there's seven of them. And But there is one at the top of that. And they're called the Hierophant. And we never see this person. Like when, when all seven of them are together in the analog of a throne room, the Hierophant is behind this curtain in a circular sort of tent that's inside the room. But but it's it's nicely decorated. It's like a, it's like a shrine unto itself, this Hierophant is. And when it speaks, one of the other members of the seven walk up to it, listen to it, turn around and then, and then speak. And so this Hierophant could be like speaking the words of the goddess. And so that was pretty interesting. But another thing that was interesting in, in the scene before we arrive at the, to meet the, the Holy Seven, we're walking through the streets and, and uh, Frederica expresses interest in seeing and meeting some of the uh, Rosellans, but uh, our escorts will not permit it because they're like the unclean people and it wouldn't be very becoming of the Glenbrook emissaries that we are to expose ourselves to doing that. And the Rosellans, they're like a laboring 
class or even like a maybe even a slave class where they're the ones harvesting the salt but we're not allowed to go witness that taking that even a step further the folks you know escorting us into the kingdom they requested that frederica not participate in the audience with the holy seven because she's half rosellen and sarah noah takes issues with issue with this because this is my bride to be she's here as an extension of glenbrook like i am and you wouldn't deny us the ability to go speak with them like you wouldn't insult us by placing that limit on us and uh, they will reluctantly agree given that she does not speak when she's in the presence of the of the holy seven and and then with that we have permission to go meet them anyway the following scene is more interesting where our escort takes us into the labs where we where it looks like we were processing the salt into healing technology um a gift of the goddess the hyzant civilization have is that they have the salt and they have enhanced curative powers or technology and so we go into these rooms where folks are working on it and and that seems pretty interesting and then as we're let out back into the city we find that one of these healer researchers is escaping from the citadel with secrets that we don't i don't know where he's taking them but he's he's running off with them and he's got some soldiers or i don't know bandits he picked up with him along the way and a escort asks us to assist in apprehending this smuggler this this uh this um thief this thief is a lab technician you know he's he's a he's like a mage he's like a he's like a scholar he's not like a hard-bitten you know bandit he's an educated one the hyzant escort gives us someone to assist us in apprehending it and it is this man who is like an an ice mage and and he joins the party after the fight and um he's pretty interesting because he creates impassable terrain he's got a one by three ice wall that he can create for two tp to wall people off and and uh, and i found that pretty useful in a future battle there anyways uh that's kind of the extent of it uh we learned that there are precious secrets that the Hyzant are protecting. Um, we learn that salt is critical to life and a gift from the goddess, and it is Hyzant's responsibility to protect it and control it and, you know, make sure it gets processed and, and executed properly. And, uh, and that's kind of the, I don't know, that's about all I can remember from that leg of the journey. Yeah, as you talk about healing properties, the salt and things like that, I'm now leaning back towards it's being elevated to a level, something beyond the real world. I don't know, like, that seems not realistic about the properties of salt the the ability to make healing magics from it so mm -hmm. Now, now I'm back on the George Lucas train of thought of he was originally intrigued by trade wars in real life that revolved around spice and he wrote that into his books and then realized wait that's kind of dumb for space so now spice is something else mm -hmm. I think this guy who whoever wrote the scenario for this game was reading about salt wars and he's like that's pretty cool wait I'm gonna throw in a magical element too right uh what happens next? I think in the interest of keeping this a little bit more brief, we should just skip to the, the big kind of snap of the story and where things are going. Let, let's do it. You can take it away, but don't forget about uh, the mine to precipitate it. Yes. So we talked about earlier that one of the S. Frosty cousins. Uh, what is his name? Do you remember? Um, I don't. It started with a D. D for a drunk. <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> Drunk, Drunky Pants. I think it was Mr. Drunky Pants. Dragon. Dragon. Got it. Drunk gone. Yeah. So cousin to the Archduke of Esros. His name is Dragon. He is in charge of the mining operation. He finds something amazing, something wonderful. We don't know what it is. And he's going to leverage this in the meritocracy to his work in gaining this special resource to become second to the Archduke himself or, you know, whatever. And immediately the Archduke's spies that witness this act of insurrection from Dragon, the Archduke orders for Dragon to be killed. Unfortunately, Sarah Noah, our, our player character, made the decision to visit and inspect the mining operation when this all went down. So he was present for the assassination of Dragon by S. Frosty soldiers. So now I had just visited S. Frost. I had procured good relations with the Archduke. I had helped him with one of their problems. I'm marrying their cast off half sister. Everything's good, except I just discovered a plot to consolidate power around the throne and uh, get rid of any challengers to it. So I, the Esfrosti soldiers, are now ordered to kill me as well. And a battle ensues. I don't let that happen. And wouldn't you know it, with all of its developments, now Glenbrook is receiving a full invasion from Esfrost. And the Archduke Gustadolf is marching upon the capital himself. Tyler, we both talked about how much we enjoyed the fight, which was the siege of the castle. The objective is to get Prince Roland into the main, I don't know what the word is, like the main chamber of the castle to rescue the king, Regna. Mm-hmm. And there's a battle where you, the objective is literally to protect Roland and get him to a certain place on the map. Yeah. Yeah. That was a fun, that, that was, I think my favorite battle. It was, um, there was high tension. Uh, enemies are continue to flood in from all corners of the map as you're trying to make your way through the map, cutting down people and maybe losing one or two on the way of your own on the way. If Roland dies, it's game over. So you have to protect him. It's, it's pretty neat how the first few fights were just kind of, you know, slavery buddy. But as the game plays out, the conditions for winning are getting more and more nuanced. Yeah, this battle was great, Tyler. And after we finish it, uh, I, I want to shoot through the story here because I, I think this is the part where the, we've engrossed the player enough and the, the main plot is hit. So we get to the main chambers of the castle. King Regna is besieged by Archduke Gustadolf. We try and make a stand. We do a pincer attack. But long story short, one of the crown princes is slain. All hell kind of breaks loose. And we are ordered to retreat by the king because now the heir apparent is Roland and he is the one currently in our party and we've been protecting him. So uh, the the tide kind of shifts and it becomes about escaping rather than saving the king. This scene is, it's high tension. It's got a, a, a lot happens and it kind of sets the stage for the rest of the game and the main struggle. I don't know that I necessarily buy it because I just killed like 30 people and I walk into a room of about 10 and I have the pincer advantage <laughs> all sorts of things and, and then i'm told i just need to run away and even there's even a scene where you start accusing gustadolf of his treachery with slaying his cousin in 
the mine and everything, and your advisor tells you to shut up because, well, he doesn't know that you witnessed the act, and it's like, I also killed 30 of his guys there, too. So, like, <laughs> there's no way he doesn't know. So, there, there's a lot of, like, in my opinion, artificial stakes in this scene that it's like, well, this, sure, the end goal was written before the details were written, in my mind. I, I don't necessarily buy it. I think the game has earned some goodwill with me up to this point you know we we've talked about maybe the story being a long a little long-winded but i am enjoying it so it's getting some passes from me here maybe not in this scene but i'm looking forward to where things go from here mm-hmm. the, the tension is is rising pretty nicely i enjoyed the invasion and i don't really know what's going to happen next i i stopped at you know 10 hours and that was and uh, following the escape of the castle that was about where i took a break before recording this episode here yeah one last little tangent i'll throw in it's customary in our podcast for me to throw out some little anime predictions <laughs> in this scene archduke gustav gives hints that what he is doing is for the greater good and that he's actually the hero in this story obviously he's not we see him as the the menacing villain he is his co-conspirators and brother and sister are openly racist they are murderous treacherous d-bag you know so we as the player know but our antagonists he does not share the opinion that he is the bad guy my anime prediction here is that i'm gonna go with the in the past rosellans were responsible for some great tragedy that earned them everyone else's ire And since then, that's why they're made slaves, they're being driven out of their homes, they're looked down upon from all angles. And the reason that Gusadolf is invading Glenbrook and saying that he it's necessary that he take the reins and bring these people under his heel, it has to do with the fact that they harbor a growing settlement of Rosellan refugees there. And that little stain on their country is just too much of an affront for him because if that small group grows and expands and becomes more powerful, that represents a significant threat. Gusadolf even comments about how he cares not for his own father's dealings or his death and really doesn't care about the man at all. I think that that's motivated by his father having a Rosellan mistress. Maybe that fuels his hatred of Rosellans is that the father loved the the mistress more than the mother. Mm-hmm. Who knows? But my guess is that's going to be the kind of mid to end game twist is that there's some sort of history here of calamitous or misunderstood reason on why everyone hates the Rosellans and that the our antagonist sees himself as the hero by putting these people back under heel. Let's see how the prediction goes. Mm, outstanding, Nate. So, Tyler, when we're talking about the characters, there is a subject I need to bring up. Uh, just my little nitpickiness and all that. I think the game... No. I think that, in general, the writing I get from Japanese RPGs has trended towards having no subtext whatsoever anymore. And I don't I don't know why. I don't know if it's a cultural thing or what's changed to accentuate these stories that every character says every single thing they're feeling out loud in the moment no matter what in order for the player to feel like they're engaged in it if they don't do that then they're at a loss that's interesting but if you asked me where i thought the 
excessive formalities were coming from in the script. I just thought it would be world building. Uh, we address one another very formally and we say everything. And oh, actually, you know what? You could also say that it's a flaw of the script because people do say, okay, character A, let's go, let's go do this. And character B, okay, I agree. We should also do this. And then they say this verbatim. And then the scene ends and then we're back in the world map. And then the world map narrator reviews the events of the scene that took place. So we get to hear it a third time too. It's overkill. I don't think we need, I mean, maybe we'll need her later, but this, we're hearing the same stuff a lot. Yes, and an example I'll give to this, and of course we're in this space of Square Enix, Final Fantasy, history, pedigree, and all of this stuff. Again, as I've said, I'm going back to tactics, right? With the matter of subtext, in Triangle Strategy, we have a villain who openly says all of his motivations, criticizes his peers for what they did wrong, and tells them that he's going to crush them and take care of them. The lower brother and sister are openly racist and say all of their things thoughts out loud and after killing their cousin will say hey kill this guy too and clean this up and do that and do this and all of their motivations and prejudices and faults are laid bare for us the viewer to immediately hate upon them now if we go to final fantasy tactics one spoilers for final fantasy tactics here one of the major antagonists is the main character's brother dysodarg but when you meet dysodarg his villainy is not openly on display it is a part of his subtext so he is quote unquote the good leading heir to house beowulf but from the beginning he gives off an air of being above the needs of his people he's a noble the regular people don't matter he is not solemn or respectful in the presence of his dying father he is complaining about his brother's lack of decorum and focused on other matters he is not concerned by a political dignitaries kidnapping and just says you know what the troops are going to deal with it it's not a big deal doesn't offer to send any additional aid for the situation and when his brother proceeds to take care of a band of miscreants that are terrorizing the public he treats young ramza's recent battle accomplishments as matters that increase his political favor and acclaim rather than actions lauded for the good they've done so dice dark has tons of subtext on why he he is a not good guy. Before dozens of hours later, it is verified that he is actually an antagonist within the game. Mm -hmm. Triangle strategy does not deal in any of that subtext. And it is frustrating at times that it is not concerned with fleshing out characters over a course of time. That's why I made that anime prediction earlier. Why it's hard to not just pigeonhole certain characters into certain things. And even if they were to make a revelation later of, well, I actually see myself as a hero or a as the protagonist, I can't buy into it because they've already demonized them so heavily overtly that I just can't get into it. Do you understand where I'm going with that and why it's... Yes, I know where you're going with that. Um, I'm noticing the same thing and I'm kind of wondering if the writers of Triangle Strategy are trading that sort of character depth with geopolitical depth and that is the character, the character of the kingdoms that is the relevant evil or good metric. The antagonizing factor is geopolitical and maybe not so interpersonal. Yeah, and it might be a little pedestrian to equate tactics to Shakespeare. <laughs> you know, that might be downplaying Shakespeare a little bit. Man, that's that's just that just encapsulates this whole thing we're trying to do here. 
What a great quote. Oh, my God. As always, this has been a recording from the gaming podcast Hero with a Thousand Potions with your hosts, Nate and Tyler. You should think about joining us on Discord. Find a link in the podcast description paragraph wherever you get your podcast fix here. And you can also connect with us by email at herowithathousandpotions at gmail.com and Twitter at herowithathousandpot. Of course, each of those thousands are one, zero, zero, zero. Thanks again. See you next time.